Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Kat Arney and Chris Smith, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how relative finger length corresponds to exposure to testosterone, and how that, in turn, predicts how successful a trader will be on the stocks and shares market the kind of trading they were studying in London where people are making very fast trades they're having to react very quickly to second by second or at most minute by minute fluctuations in prices this requires very fast reaction times very similar to the way in which you would need to react to something on the sports field how tiny water dwelling organisms contain a major new weapon in the fight against antibiotic resistant microbes now what makes this protein unusual is that it isn't at all similar to most of the other antimicrobial proteins that scientists have previously discovered and this is potentially powerful because it means this is a totally new angle to try in the war on bugs and seasonal methane on mars we know it's there but where could it be coming from the uh, general view is that uh, if methane is released, it could only be coming from one of two potential sources, uh, one being uh, geochemistry of uh, one of two kinds, and the other being uh, of, of biology of one or two uh, natures. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have announced that there's a good way to predict the effect of your effectiveness of your broker on the stock exchange, and that's to measure the length of their fingers. This is John Coates, who's got a paper in the journal PNAS this week, where he and his colleagues have measured the fingers of 44 traders on the stock market, and they have calculated what's called the 2D to 4D ratio. So the second digit, the index finger, you compare the length of that with the length of your ring finger, the fourth digit. If the fourth digit is significantly longer than the second digit, this can be used as a measure of exposure to testosterone when you're developing as a baby. In fact, some of the genes that help you to develop the urogenital system are also involved in the development of the limbs and fingers, and so that's the tie-up with testosterone, and so you can use the length of these fingers as an index of how much testosterone you've had. And an amazing pattern emerged when they studied these traders and their trading habits because what they found was that the people who had the evidence of the lowest 2D to 4D ratio, in other words, their ring finger was much longer than their index finger and therefore they'd had the most testosterone in the womb, those people made the most money. And so this, says John Coates, is probably because if you look at sportsmen, when people are on the playing field and they're playing aggressive games like rugby, Australian rules football, ice hockey, those kind of games, those kind of games are favoured by people who are very testosterone rich, testosterone rich, androgen rich. And people who have a very strong 2D to 4D ratio, in other words, they've had a lot of testosterone during their upbringing, during their development, they tend to do much better at those kind of sports. And he's arguing that the kind of trading they were studying in London, where people are making very fast trades, they're having to react very quickly to second by second or at most minute by minute fluctuations in prices, this requires very fast reaction times, very similar to the way in which you would need to react to something on the sports field. And for that reason, that's why this particular configuration is benefited in the same way as you would be benefited if you were doing sports. So, in future, when you're going to make a trade on the stock market, the first thing you have to do when you phone up your broker is to measure their fingers before you threaten to break them. Kat. Could explain why I'm so poor as well. My four fingers are really short and I'm very ladylike. Uh, anyway, it's a completely different subject. As you can read in any paper, there are big problems we know about today with hospital-acquired infections. These are people who pick up nasty bugs in hospital. And adding to that, we have the problem of antibiotic resistance 
resistance. It means that we have fewer weapons in our fight against bacteria. And so the search is on for scientists to find new antibiotics. And now researchers at the University of Kiel in Germany have found an unexpected source of these new bug busters. And these are tiny animals known as hydra. These are tiny creatures. They're just a few millimetres long and they live in freshwater ponds and streams. They're called hydra after the mythical beast that had loads of serpents on its head because they're a little stump with lots of tentacles on. They're quite cute little things. Um, Writing in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, Joachim Grutzinger and his colleagues have discovered a new protein in hydra and they've called it hydromacin-1 very original and it has powerful antibacterial action now what makes this protein unusual is that it isn't at all similar to most of the other antimicrobial proteins that scientists have previously discovered it seems to be a completely new protein family and they looked at the 3d structure of it and they found that it's most closely related to a super family of proteins that include some found in scorpion venom uh, some in leeches as well and this is potentially powerful because it means this is a totally new angle to try in the war on bugs. Now, when they tested it in the lab, they showed that hydromacin-1 could kill a wide range of different bacteria, including bugs called Klebsiella oxytoca, which are a common culprit in these hospital-inquired infections. And the researchers found that hydromacin-1 works actually by sticking to the surface of bacteria. It causes them to lump together, and eventually this breaks the cell membranes, and the bacteria die. Now, this is a long way from being a useful microbicide that maybe you could give to patients or you could use as a, a wash in hospitals, but it is a new angle that we can try in the war on bugs. How do they seek to exploit this? Is it going to be a case of just copying the gene and then tweaking it a little bit? Or is it going to be taking the mechanism and then starting from fresh to make something that does the same thing but it's entirely artificial? I think it's really too early to tell because they've only really just discovered this family of proteins and discovered that they could have antibacterial action. So it's really, this is a, a new start for a new avenue in research. We're talking of treating people with nasty diseases. Rheumatoid arthritis is a nasty disease. In fact, it affects about one person in every 100. So it's very common. And in the UK, it costs the health service about £1.2 billion every single year. So the more we can do to find out why people get rheumatoid arthritis and how to treat it, the better. Well, this week there's a paper in the journal PLOS Medicine, and this has been written by Constantino Pizzalis, who's a researcher at Barts and the London Medical School down in London. And he and his team have made a dramatic discovery about how the disease actually attacks joints. They took samples from the joint spaces of people who are affected by rheumatoid arthritis, and they took cells out of the joint and discovered that what's going on is that a kind of white blood cell, which normally fights infection, called a B cell, a B lymphocyte, those cells home in on affected joints in the disease and they form structures called germinal centres. And germinal centres behave like antibody factories. They produce antibodies inside the joint and these antibodies then attack the joint and they promote and provoke the disease. And the way in which they did this was by taking those cell samples out, they were able to put clusters of these cells into mice called skid mice that don't have any immune system and then follow what happened to those cells in the mice. And the cells continue to produce these antibodies in the mice for up to 90 days. Why this is important is apart from proving that the joints make these antibodies in situ and that's how they end up being attacked, the ability to make these antibodies in mice like this is a very powerful way to develop new treatments and size up new drugs for rheumatoid arthritis because what the researchers are saying 
is that what we can now do is to develop specific strategies and try specific strategies on specific patient samples with various drugs that are out there that are capable of killing this particular class of cells because in order to treat the disease you need to get rid of these cells that are making these antibodies to your joints. If you can selectively kill those cells the disease could be pushed into remission and so you can test these drugs very cheaply and very simply on these animal models and this means you're very much able to accelerate the process of drug discovery and therapeutics. So that's out this week and is a major dent in a major disease. Yeah, because the, the drugs are really expensive, aren't they, the, the rheumatoid drugs? They use gold and all sorts of precious metals in them. Well, in the old days, it was pretty simple. You gave people steroids, and sometimes they got a bit better, but very often they didn't. And now we have a, a panoply of agents which are called disease-modifying drugs, these biological agents, which do or don't always make a difference, but they are very expensive. And you only find out whether they're going to make a difference after you've given them to somebody, but by then you've already paid the price, which is a big bill to the NHS, and it may not actually work in that person. So we need a better strategy to tailor the therapy better to the individual. Ah, important stuff. And now onto a very uh, different but very important disease as well, which is postnatal depression. This does affect a significant proportion of new mothers, and some studies suggest that around 1 in 20 women may be affected, while others show that as many as 1 in 4 new mums could get postnatal depression. And now not only is this a problem for the mother, but it has a major impact on her child and its care. And in the worst cases, it can actually lead to women taking their own lives. This is obviously very serious. And new mums with postnatal depression may be offered antidepressants, but many don't really want to take them, especially if they're breastfeeding as well. But now researchers from the University of Toronto have discovered that talking things through with someone who understands what you're going through could actually cut the chances of postnatal depression by around half. And this is work by Dr Cindy Lee Dennis and her team, and they're writing in the British Medical Journal this week. They used a web-based tool to screen more than 21,000 new mothers in the Canadian province of Ontario to find those who seem to be at most risk of developing postnatal depression. And you can use a number of sort of social and all kinds of markers to work out who's at the most risk. Then they recruited around 700 women, divided them randomly into two groups, good design for clinical trial. Uh, One group got the standard postnatal care that that all women would receive and the other group got the same care but they also had telephone support from a volunteer who'd been through postnatal depression. And the researchers found that the mums who got this support over the phone had half the risk of developing depression three months after their birth than women who just got standard care. Around eight out of ten said they thought it was great they were satisfied with it and they'd recommend it to a friend as well so it's very cheap intervention very effective intervention and dr dennis says that women and their families really need to know a lot more about postnatal depression and putting new mums who are at risk in touch with women who've been through it could really be a great way to help but also we need doctors nurses midwives all these health professionals to be aware of the risks aware of the symptoms put in the right support at the right time one also wonders how people used to cope in days gone by when these kind of things were under recognized under diagnosed and undertreated. It's amazing. We're all, we're all still here, really, isn't <laughs> exactly. it? Exactly. Thank you, Kat. Well, also this week, scientists have made a very dramatic discovery on Mars, and that's the discovery of methane seeping to the surface. But where's it coming from? Could it be coming, scientists are wondering, from underground life? Well, joining us from NASA's Goddard Centre for Astrobiology is one of the scientists who made that discovery, Dr Mike Mummer. Hello, Mike. Hi, good morning, well, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about this methane. How did you find it in the first place? Well, we were searching for it uh, since 1999, actually. And we're using a, uh, a spectroscopic uh, technique uh, from the summit of Mauna Kea, which is a very uh, high volcano in, in Hawaii. 
14,000 feet, where unlike most of Hawaii, it actually snows once in a while. In any case, uh, we started uh, then, and by 2003, we had actually detected the gas using a technique called infrared spectroscopy and looking for vibrational bands of, of methane and uh, indeed of water at the same time. They're measured simultaneously in our instrument. Why did you go looking for it in the first place, Mike? Well, of course, uh, one would not expect to find methane on Mars because it's an oxidizing atmosphere unless it were released uh, very recently. Because otherwise, the lifetime of methane would be too short to have a significant abundance in the atmosphere. And so the uh, general view is that uh, if methane is released, it could only be coming from one of two potential sources, uh, one being uh, geochemistry of one of two kinds, and the other being a, a biology of one or two uh, natures. So you think that in the same way that the early Earth was populated by methanogens, bacteria that make methane and actually were quite beneficial to us because they, they warmed up Earth and made it the propitious environment for other kinds of life like us to exist later, you think the same thing might be happening on Mars? It very well could be. In fact, we can take a message from the uh, deep biosphere below uh, South Africa uh, where uh, scientists have discovered that uh, there are uh, bacteria down there which actually metabolize in, the, in total absence of sunlight. And they uh, use radiolysis uh, to break water uh, into uh, molecular hydrogen and oxygen, and then the, the bacteria uh, basically eat that uh, hydrogen and uh, produce a gas called uh, hydrogen sulfide as a, as a result. One, it's not a great stretch to imagine that methanogens might exist in a similar environment on Mars and could, in fact, be using energy uh, that had been uh, from radiolysis and so on, releasing, uh, producing this methane, which is then released into the atmosphere. So having identified the fact that you've got this methane signal in the atmosphere around Mars, how did you then further develop the investigation to try and work out where it was coming from? Well, we use a uh, spectrometer that has an entrance, a long entrance slit, and we place that slit along the north-south meridian of the planet, the, the midline dividing the east and west hemispheres. And then we uh, we take a, a, about 50 spectrum, that is 50, at 50 locations along the slit, and a cadence of every 60 seconds. So every 60 seconds we get a new set of spectra, 50 of them. And then, uh, depending on how we uh, combine those spectra, we can choose the uh, range of longitudes that will pass under the slit uh, during the, uh, the bend uh, interval. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the case of uh, a five- or six-hour interval, uh, Mars will rotate uh, approximately uh, 60 uh, to 80 degrees of longitude in that time. And this way, we can uh, then later convert the measured spectra uh, taking latitude from top to bottom of the slit and longitude with time and, and develop a map uh, for methane and, and, of course, also for water. So the planet, effectively, because it's rotating, surveys itself, which is very convenient. Um, what did this tell you? What did you see? The big surprise uh, was not just that we had uh, detected methane, uh, but actually we see three regions of active release uh, which are uh, fairly closely grouped. They're within about 500 to 1,000 kilometers of one another. One region is over the uh, district called Neely Fossi. This is a, a, a canyon system which is uh, uh, known to uh, be a site where phyllosilicates, clay, clay minerals that form in uh, liquid water, and also carbonates uh, are uh, found by uh, Mars Express and also by the... Uh, 
uh, an instrument on the uh, Mars Observer spacecraft. Uh, in any case, uh, what's interesting is this is a, also a region of intense release of methane, and of course methane uh, could be associated with water uh, early in Mars history or even now below the surface and produced, produced by biology at this time. Is the release that you're seeing constant? Are you continuously seeing methane pumping out or does it come in spurts? Well, in fact, uh, it does not come out continuously. Uh, we find that uh, between uh, midsummer in the north, when we see the maximum release, and the, the next equinox season, um, the methane is largely destroyed by about a factor, reduced by a factor of two on Mars uh, by a process we think is related to airborne dust. So uh, th this methane is being released uh, now uh, in midsummer in the north. That's what we reported this week. And indeed, we think uh, this is a very important uh, window into an active Mars, which we have not had before. So the obvious question now is you've got two choices. It's either life or it's not life. It's something geological. You've got to answer that question. How are you going to do it? Well, we've started to test uh, these two hypotheses. Uh, one, of course, is to look for additional gases that uh, would accompany either geochemical production or biological production. So we've started a deep search for those gases uh, in 2006. Uh, unfortunately, in a season of equinox when we don't see methane ever, so they weren't so very meaningful then, but we're beginning again uh, this fall, beginning in August of 2009, uh, at the uh, Very Large Telescope in uh, ESO's uh, Southern Observatory. So we'll just have to watch this space for more fertile findings from Mars. We must leave it there. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Mummer, who's the director of NASA's Goddard Centre for Astrobiology. He and his team have announced that discovery in this week's Science. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith and Kat Arney and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this News Flash, then why not check out the Naked Scientists podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from all over the world, your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try at home each week. We'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.